Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax reform to the European Union's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services Leader. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're in Orlando, Florida, for PwC's Tax Leadership Conference, where I'm excited to be joined by Oscar Tunison. Oscar is a partner in our international tax financial services practice. He's our global sovereign wealth fund and pension fund tax leader and part of our global private equity leadership team. Oscar, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. So, Oscar, you're our third Dutchman of our 10 podcast, but we're really excited to learn some more, myself particularly, about our financial services practice, really what does this mean? And you're talking to a guy who has spent a lot of his time on consumer products, industrial products, pharma, tech, and so there is some element of financial services that is a bit mysterious to, to some of those in the international tax world that don't spend a lot of time in that area. So maybe you can start, tell me a little bit about the sector and tell me a little bit about, you know, what, is, what does it mean to be in the financial services and what you do? Sure, um, and, and, and happy to give you a little bit of uh, demystification around uh, this sector. First of all, it's an incredible, interesting sector, and I'll give you a little bit of background around it. But first of all, if you think about the size of this sector, global pension funds right now equate to $50 trillion of assets. And so it's a very, very large uh, section uh, and therefore basically uh, very important, you know, from a global policy perspective. If you think about, you know, where are these global pension funds investing? Um, also, the sovereign wealth funds um, w are approximately $10 trillion. So we're talking about $60 trillion. And why is it important, you know, from an international tax perspective? You know, first of all, we're currently in a, a pretty low-yielding environment. So if you look back at where the pension funds and the sovereign wealth funds were coming from, maybe 10 years ago, most of their monies and funds were invested in the stock market, and particularly also around fixed income. But now, of course, with the interest rates being at a very low level, and particularly the pension funds sometimes having to deal with pension gaps, you know, as it relates to, you know, how do they really get the right returns? Those pension funds and some wealth funds really have directed their investment strategy more to, um, I call the illiquid markets. And these are the alternative investments. Mm -hmm. And, there are, you know, a couple of examples are private equity, real estate, infrastructure, if you think about sort of inflation-proof returns that they're looking for. And also, um, they're looking at all kind of different special opportunities. So what does that mean from a tax perspective? I mean, who's the typical owner and, and the stakeholders? As Before we kind of dive into some of the key tax issues across the globe that are impacting these, help me understand, you know, that how does that owner structure look? What are the stakeholders? Because I know there are obviously a lot of tax exempts, you know, from a, particularly in the U.S., but help me understand kind of how does that work, whether it's in the, self, the Sovereign Wealth Fund or the other areas. Yeah, now that it's a very good question. And to be honest, when I got this role, some people said, well, what, what are you going to do? Because these entities typically are tax exempt. By the way, this is not across the globe. Funds in China are subject to tax. But just in general, in the home country where they're coming from, uh, they typically do have a, a privileged sort of tax exempt regime. So being in charge of that group doesn't sound like a, a real career uh, improvement. Having said that, if you go back to the, the investment policy that I just talked about. Mm -hmm. uh, so you cannot, as a Canadian investment uh, pension plan, only invest in the Canadian market. 
particularly it's, a, it's more than a trillion dollars, you have to invest globally. And this is where uh, we're doing a lot of help and support with respect to you know, dealing with interesting tax issues. Because if you're a Canadian pension plan and you're investing in German real estate, those exemptions disappear. Typically, if you invest in a certain country, uh, you're going to be subject to tax. And because the pension funds are tax-exempt, that tax is really a bottom-line cost. Uh, because the idea is that with a pension fund, the taxation kicks in when a re retiree is receiving the pension. But that, of course, that individual also cannot take a foreign tax credit. So there's a lot of focus on making sure that we minimize those taxes. And so from an international tax perspective, if you, for example, look at double tax treaties, because of this sort of specific nature and cross-border sort of, you know, trying to make sure that there's, you know, no disruption, there are special tax provisions for pension funds. So pension funds typically have, for example, like a, a zero uh, rate for dividend withholding tax. And, and the idea is, you know, if there's a big Dutch pension plan, of course, here in the U.S., uh, we have large pension plans. It's good for both sides if you negotiate a treaty to just reflect sort of the unique nature of those type of investors. So that's important. We need to look at. And on the sovereign wealth fund side, because these are typically controlled by government entities, mm -hmm. there are also specific tax positions, like here in the U.S. at Section 892, which is sovereign immunity, which has been in our code for a very long time and provides, you know, particularly in non-control situations, benefits around not having subject to withholding tax, avoiding FERPTA. So again, those type of sovereign immunity rules are quite unique. Australia has different rules than maybe other countries, but just to give you an idea of why it is a pretty interesting area. Sure. I mean, it's not doesn't sound too dissimilar from, frankly, some of the U.S. multinationals that I work with or the foreign-based multinationals. How do you get cash across borders? How do you move the, the money between borders? How do you structure the various types of investments? And that can be an absolute cost to the organization, right, to the uh, investing entity, and then how do you return the cash and the funds ultimately to the shareholders? Where I spend a lot of time thinking about those withholding taxes. It sounds like you know similar types of issues with, but special types of rules often depending if you're dealing with pension funds or the like. So fundamentally structured, it's dealing with tax at the corporate, at the enterprise level, maybe I would say, and then how do you get the cash back and return those investments to the stakeholders? Yeah, and and the interesting thing is also that in a, in, if you read a lot of the newspaper articles, complicated deals right now typically have a big pension fund or a sovereign wealth fund in it. So if you're thinking about some of the structuring we do, where let's say a large multinational corporation is thinking about disposing a big business unit, you could see private equity coming in there, but you see typically also large pension funds coming in because ultimately one of the challenges you know in this low yielding environment is that they are looking at more you know, alternative investment opportunities. So private equity is a, is a great example. And the fact that they have $50 trillion, of course, you know, they need to invest that. And that's why they're a big part right now of deals. You see them in a lot of structures. And you know, the multinational corporations sometimes want to understand what the sensitivities are for those type of investors. Uh, because ultimately, when we put the structure together, we want to make sure it's aligned for all parties. And they, of course, have you know some of these specific attributes. Absolutely. So let's unpack that a little bit, because I want to spend a little bit more time with deals. But maybe before we head there, let's maybe start with U.S. tax reform. We've, we've, we've talked a lot on the podcast about U.S. tax reform. We've had one of your fellow Dutchmen also talk about the anti-tax avoidance directive and what's taking place in Europe. But maybe we start with U.S. tax reform. 
How have you seen U.S. tax reform, specifically in some of these major policy changes, while we still wait for rags on a lot of the important issues, I think, that are, are relevant for some in the industry, but how have you seen U.S. tax reform impact uh, the financial services market and specifically sovereign wealth funds and, and some of the pension funds? So, so it's very important, um, you know, for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, the most of the funds that we're working with have invested significant amount of money already into the U.S., whether it's real estate, private equity, infrastructure. And so, as you know, um, most of these rules don't have typically grandfather provisions. So just understanding, you know, what the impact would be on the model, let's say, if you think about the tax leakage that, you know, investment professionals were sort of looking at, when they invested in the US originally and what the consequences are today is a key part of, of what where we're helping our clients right now, just making sure that they understand the gap assessment. And the other part that is sort of interesting to notice here is that, you know, if you think about sort of, you know, money being fungible and can be traveling around the world, from a policy perspective, typically governments are very interested in making sure that you know they have an attractive regime for these long-term investors and uh, long-term investors that can help with the infrastructure that can help with you know dealing with some of the the capital needs are of course very important you know the u.s markets of course are very deep uh, but you know those investors are important so a key part of what we've tried to do with uh, a fair uh, amount of our clients is also actively uh, discussing in washington what some of the, I call it unintended consequences that are coming from, for example, tax reform. And maybe, you know, if you look at, of course, they're, you know, they're all inbound investors. Mm -hmm. eh? Most of them, of course, they're also U.S. pension plans, uh, but they're, of, ta of course, tax exempt. But as inbound investors, of course, they've been worried about 163J. And so we're looking forward to see the regs coming out. Uh, the rate drop, of course, was a, a benefit, you know, to Absolutely. the extent they have, you know, income from U.S. real estate or other, you know, products, you know, that's been beneficial. Um, you know, most of the inbound rules around withholding tax have really not changed. And FERPTA is still important. And so... Yeah, uh, those really didn't get touched, no. right? So and, I mean, and we've got the lower the, the lower corporate rate that we right. get to deal with, but the withholding yeah. taxes and those those rules haven't really changed at all. That's right. And so BEAT is, is a quite big concern, and we wrote a comment letter recently uh, to the government because, you know, the pension funds, of course, all get consolidated up into one entity, different than with private equity that typically have a partnership structure. And so from a beat perspective, it's quite difficult as pension funds have, you know, many, many investments to really track the data, get the data. And so they've been sort of working through that. So uh, explain that a little bit more, these different types of ownership structures that you just mentioned. So I think, you know, like if you think about, you know, typical pension fund, you know, they may have 100% owned U.S. subsidiaries that own real estate. They may have, you know, partial interest in REITs. They may own, you know, minority interest in different companies. They're investing in the stock market. So you have to really apply all the, the sort of definitions, as you know, to, uh, to, to really determine, you know, what's really captured. Uh, and, you know, one of the concerns for the pension funds is also like if they're doing a deal, if let's say a private equity fund would not be affected by BEAT, but they would be because they're sort of treated as a multinational corporation. But, mm -hmm. you know, from our perspective, they're really more like an investor. It's not like an, a multinational corporation where the policy part maybe of BEAT is a little clearer than it would be for a pension fund. So we've been trying to see, 
if there are some opportunities there to to get some further clarifications which we think again because you know the size of this group of investors is is something that we want to have an active dialogue and as you know we have a great team in washington with with people like mike defrons or pam olson and we're really trying to make sure that they're engaged uh, with the tax directors in this community. Yeah, so so I guess that you have to deal with, you know, first of all, these foreign related parties, how do you define a related party? Obviously, some of that has changed with some of the changes to Section 958. So, you know, how you deal with a, a related party and then whether things could be characterized as or certain entities could be characterized as U.S. shareholders and then whether you have CFCs, do you run into those rules as well? Uh, from from some of the ownership structures. Well, yeah, because now let's say in some cases, if they have U.S. subsidiaries, you know, like we're we're currently dealing with sort of unintended fifty four seventy one consequences and 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 having to deal with filings again. Here we're looking at maybe going back to the government, trying to see if there's any way we could clarify it because of you know if you think about it, they're all foreign pension plans, so for them to file 5471s would be a huge amount I of mean, effort. I mean, that's got to be a massive issue, right? Because if you've got that one U.S. company within the ownership group and then all of a sudden it will attract yes. through these new attribution rules what is defined yes. as a CFC and yeah. just massive 5471 and, and compliance yeah. requirements. and nobody wants to pay the penalties. And so, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we're actively discussing that right now. Uh, so, yeah, no, so, so U.S. tax reform now going forward, of course, when we're doing deals, uh, the interesting part of it is that, you know, in some cases, because they're looking at different sectors, so if you take the insurance sector, which had, you know, was severely affected by tax reform, you know, they're sometimes looking at that as a way to maybe buy a company if there is a reason for a seller after tax reform to maybe realign some of the entities because of the tax inefficiency. So the interesting part of it is not just only the impact for themselves, but, you know, is there an opportunity to do a transaction because, let's say, a certain sector is affected, particularly if they like that sector, of course. Uh, so there is a component that we are having active sort of discussions with our sector teams to share, you know, whether it's oil and gas, uh, because they like to invest in that, those type of sectors or infrastructure to at least, you know, educate them and take them on that. And then for the deals we're doing today, you know, to the extent, of course, we can, you know, model out some of the, the, the benefits of accelerated amortization. Those things, you know, are factored into uh, to these issues as well. But, of course, you know, as I mentioned, you know, you can put leverage in it, but if you're still subject to withholding tax because you come from the Middle East, you know, there are some, some things that you have to sort of take into account. Yeah, it sounds like, obviously, modeling is always key. That's one of the things that yep. we've talked about, U.S. tax reform, kind of irrespective of inbound versus outbound from a U.S. perspective versus the type of industry you're in. Just modeling is key, and it's just way, way more complicated than, than it used to be. And it also sounds like, you know, with U.S. tax reform, industries, companies are holistically looking at their ownership structures. I mean, as we just think of S-Corps and pass-throughs now thinking about moving into C-Corp status, that you know it can fundamentally change how certain industries and how certain enter enterprises are structured, particularly from a U.S. tax perspective. That's right. So let's talk, because the U.S. is not the only place. I continue to remind the listeners of our podcast that the U.S. is not the only place where we're having major changes from an international tax perspective. I joke, Oscar, that under any other scenario without U.S. reform, everybody in the tax community would be so focused on the anti-tax avoidance directive in Europe. And all 28 member states, we've got ATAD-1 that needs to be implemented by January 1st, 19, 
ATAD 2, January 1st, 2020. I mean, really fundamental changes to how we've seen Europe, you know, tax various cross-border payments. And frankly, some of it, we're just kind of losing, I would say losing interest. We're not maybe focused as much because everybody's understandably focused on U.S. tax reform. How do you see some of these non-U.S. changes impacting the industry? Yeah, so, so it's, it's a very big challenge for, for our clients because just going back to the fact that you cannot only invest in Canada, in my previous example, you can also not only invest in the U.S. You know, ultimately, if you think about the mega trends and where potentially, you know, value can be created, you have to be in the emerging markets. And so we've seen a lot of the pension funds and sovereign wealth funds setting up offices all over the world with deal professionals. So whether it's in Singapore and Hong Kong or in the U.K., so right now, because they've been investing in those markets, it's a bit the same as we talked about in the U.S., which is we're going into full implementation mode on BEPS, mm -hmm. and then you have the EU trying to be best in class with their own rules. Uh, this morning I was on the call with our Latin American team because in Chile and in Peru and Colombia, they're all changing the rules as it relates to indirect transfers, and all of these things are relevant for potential exits that we've been thinking about with respect to these investments. So I, I call it sort of always like reading the tea leaves, but we need to read the tea leaves in, you know, 100 countries, you know, if you look at where these clients have invested. Um, and that's challenging, you know, like, and, and, and because, you know, like you do the deal today, but you want to own the investment for 10 years. And again, going back to the fact that we're in a low-yielding environment, tax does really make the difference. If I suddenly get hit with a 30% tax, uh, on an Australian capital gain tax, that'd be a, a, a very big impact if I invest, let's say, in a toll road that gives me a 10% return. And and so sure. so the tax is, is very important, and the volatility right now and the uncertainty makes it quite difficult sometimes for us to, to sort of, you know, make sure that we're still comfortable with the investment and the returns, and there's a fair amount of back and forth between the investment teams and the tax, tax teams to make sure that we're comfortable with it. But yeah, we have legacy holding company structures in some cases where, you know, we're sort of now having to deal with the uh, MLI, the multilateral instrument. We're having to deal with EU ATED. Um, so that, that's challenging. And, you know, there also, I think, just on the policy side, mm -hmm. we are having an active dialogue with the OECD to try to educate them. It's all about education with the, with the regulators and the tax authorities. Because, you know, as you started by saying, you know, like, hey, I come out of a widget company environment, what is it, basically? And so they, it's important that they understand, uh, because ultimately, if people don't get their pension down the road, big problems will result. It's, it's a really important sector, you know, ultimately for, you know, the success of the global economy. And, and of course, that we are already sitting on a pretty sort of, I wouldn't call it ticking time bomb, but a lot of the pension plans are struggling. So, so it's really important. So we, we, we're trying to do that as well, particularly, let's say, if you take the MLI, the multilateral instrument sort of approach, you know, as they, for example, also are big investors in, in funds, we're trying to really um, see if we can look through, let's say, the fund structures, if they're holding companies, and at least be able to get the benefits that they would get themselves if they would invest directly. So Yeah, that's gotta be challenging, right? As as you structure various investment vehicles and now with the multilateral instrument, which now has a principal purpose test provision, really kind of fundamentally changing the limitation on benefits provisions of, you know, hundreds literally of treaties, you know, through dozens of, of countries. 
you know, trying to understand whether you can avail yourself of a, of a treaty because, as you mentioned, that could materially impact the after-tax return that, right. that investors have. And so, so, I mean, that's been something that I've struggled as my clients talk as, you know, obviously investment vehicles are a very big piece of U.S. publicly traded companies, foreign publicly traded companies, if they've developed investment vehicles to invest into various subsidiaries. So how are you kind of responding to that and, and dealing with that uncertainty, particularly in the limitation of benefits provisions? Yeah, so I think, you know, one way of approaching that sometimes is to not use, um, you know, to, to go direct, basically, from, let's say, Canada or the Netherlands directly into the source country. Just avoid the investment vehicle itself. Right. But in some cases, because sometimes these investments we pool together with different people, you end up with partnerships. And the problem we're having with the partnerships is that, you know, every country has a different way of looking at what, whether something is a flow-through entity or not. And now, particularly with the hybrid rules kicking in, this is going to create another layer of complexity. So even if you want to just have a neutral partnership pooling vehicle, what we've seen across the globe, that that by itself is not easy. If you have multiple countries involved, everyone having their own set of rules. So that would be another angle that we're thinking about with the OECD to see if we could agree maybe that certain vehicles, partnership vehicles, are treated by a group of, you know, uh, participants, let's call it the 100 people that sign up to the MLI, to, to agree that these are partnerships, just to make it easier for us not to look at every country and say, does Nigeria look through a Scottish partnership or not? And those questions, of course, we're dealing with all the time as we're investing all over the world. Yeah, so just to make sure that I unpack that, because that's, that's fascinating, because if you have all these multiple investors through one common legal entity that maybe most of us would say, well, that's a pass-through entity. Right. It's not subject to tax in the local jurisdiction. But if one of those particular investors' jurisdiction would say, well, no, we don't treat that as a pass-through. We're going to treat that as a body corporate. Then by definition, at least most of the jurisdictions, yeah. including the U.S., for purpose of dividing a hybrid entity, well, that becomes a hybrid entity. And then if you've got payments to or from, you potentially have issues from a BEPS perspective. One needs to think, obviously, about the treaty implications. Right. And so, yeah, that yeah. does not sound like a fun analysis. No, not so, fun. So there needs to be some consistency uh, yeah. across the globe. Yeah, and we all know that this is the time for consistency, or maybe not. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it is certainly challenging. So talk a little bit about you. You already started with, with how is this impacting the deals market, and what are you seeing from, from a deals perspective? Yeah, so I think, you know, like, uh, as you know, also in the private equity sector, there's a lot of what we call dry capital, which is they've raised very large funds uh, because ultimately lots of people are looking for alpha and returns. And so, so it's a crowded market right now across the globe, and that's why I think people are investing in different markets and, uh, and there's more direct investing happening with some of these larger investors to try to generate their own ideas and typically also team up with other funds. Uh, but the deal market is very, very strong, even though you know people are very concerned about the high prices right now. Uh, but the question, of course, is you know if you're a pension fund, you need to keep investing the money that's coming in. And so people keep looking for different opportunities. Infrastructure is a very hot asset class. You know, if you think about the U.S., of course, we're like, you know, we have, you know, a, tri a trillion dollars of deferred sort of infrastructure spend that should sure. happen. So if you think about the, m the midterm elections, you know, could we see an infrastructure bill come? What does that mean? Uh, pension funds would be the obvious candidates to invest in infrastructure. You see that happening across the globe. And so there are definitely opportunities. Now, 
pension funds, because of their risk adverse sort of nature, they prefer not to invest in greenfields where, you know, you have the construction risk. They invest more in sort of brownfield, you know, existing toll roads, but it's, it's competitive. Uh, and so the other part where we see a lot of activities, real estate. And so that's an asset class that, you know, they're comfortable with also from a risk uh, perspective again, uh, particularly the Middle Eastern fund, very active in the real estate space. Mm. So that's a, that's a, a, an asset class. And I would say we, we see that across um, the world, you know, like, and so, you know, whether it's um, in Latin America or in Europe or in Asia, and then the other part is credit. So, you know, banks have retrenched a little bit out of the credit space because okay. the regulatory issues, they're coming back to be honest a little bit, but, but, but ultimately we've seen, you know, some large deals where some of the pension plans also uh, moved into sort of the financial services credit space. Okay, so, so instead of investing through equity, you're saying lending and ha- yeah. helping fund and some of these, is that, and that's more non-traditional, it sounds like, or yeah. something's been less common, but now enterprises are looking at that? Yes, yes. And for example, in, chi- in India right now, there's a lot of focus on non-performing loans, where the banks are selling non-performing loans. Okay. And we see people looking at that asset class, high, high returns, of course. You know, the question is, how do you operationalize some of these things? And I know we're going to just catch up on that a little bit later, you know, it's like, how do you really deal with all this complexity just, you know, for managing it internally? But yeah, so it's, it's quite interesting. So, so let's move to that because that it does beg that question is, you know, what, how do these enterprises manage all this? What do the tax functions actually look like within some of these organizations or do they exist at all? Yeah, so I think that that's been um, a big challenge because I think for all of these organizations, as they keep growing, the big answer, of course, is, you know, scalability. And as, as we know, uh, overall in the market, you know, people want to do more at a lower cost and typically also more digitally enhanced. So, so what does that mean for the tax function of, let's say, the pension funds? Well, I think, first of all, because they are moving into different asset classes. You know, if you think about, if I invest in the stock market, it's not that complicated. Even though when I say that, we're spending a lot of time trying to get withholding tax refunds Mm -hmm. all over the world because the custodian banks are really struggling with the complexity of whether, you know, this is a pension fund or a sovereign wealth fund. And so that in itself is complicated, but ultimately from a books and records perspective, you know, it's sort of manageable. But now, if I own, you know, 700 entities all over the world, real estate, you know, non-performing loans, credit, the complexity is, is daunting. And so each of these funds have carefully started to look at, you know, how can we transform digitally in a way that ultimately, let's say, the back office, yeah, because it starts with the systems. Mm-hmm. And so our advisory colleagues at PwC, you know, are very focused in helping basically these, these clients right now to to deal with what I call the pipes the, the, uh, of the systems really that capture the data around the, the financial transactions. Uh, the second part then is to really make sure that the tax function, you know, if you sort of think about, you know, implementing SAP, but then building a tax data warehouse, it's a great opportunity for tax. Again, thinking about scalability, because if I go from 500 billion to a trillion, how do I really manage all these investments? Tech- technology has to be part of that. And so that's sort of our tax function of the future uh, component that you know we're actively now talking to many of our clients about. And it's, uh, it's very interesting, to be honest, because, um, because of the complexity. 
Yeah, and so so unpack that a little bit. I mean, share a little bit more um, with respect to that. Is is it mostly you know dealing with the withholding taxes that we've discussed, or you know talk to me a little bit about because I'm interested in 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 how technology is really you know transforming, particularly the way again you know my clients are doing business and even the way that we provide services. You know, what are some of these tools? What are some of the things that specifically that some of our clients or even you've been contemplating to help serve and manage some of these issues? Yeah. So, so we have, uh, you know, there are different areas. So if you think about the different asset classes, so it's talking about sort of investing in the stock market. Mm-hmm. So we developed a tool that has 110 countries on it that tracks all the relevant withholding taxes for government debt, corporate debt, and uh, shares, land-rich shares. And so that database, which we call ITV, has also a, a security analyzer that allows you to put in a certain ticker code of a trade. And that tool allows the trading teams to sort of real-time look at what the tax impact is and ultimately also think about you know these refunds and some of the other issues. The other part is Tax Engagement Center, uh, which is sort of our technology platform to manage, let's say, your global compliance. Mm-hmm. I mean, one part, uh, of course, that... Um, that that we have to deal with is global compliance because if I have a, a thousand entities, you know, particularly from a reputational perspective, pension funds, are, you know, it's very important that they're in the middle of the pack. They follow all the right filing requirements. So having a, a good system around that is important. And that's not just only corporate tax, but could be VAT or anything else. And of course, the level of complexity goes up if I control entities where I invest in that, invest in different asset classes. So if I own an insurance company, I need to think about what are my requirements uh, from an insurance company perspective. So it can get quite complicated depending on what they've invested in, even though so sometimes maybe the tax function sits at the portfolio company. And that, of course, is uh, a bit p- part of the challenge. The other thing is, I think, what I call sort of the health check, but with all these BEPS changes and all these things and, and you know, how do you really track that? And so using technology really to provide that input and share sort of real-time updates and alerts that we see across the globe that could affect basically the investment fees or the investment returns is another key area that you know we're working on. And then I think a third part is sort of, I call it pipes into the portfolio companies. Mm-hmm. But you know, how can you really track, let's say, the returns of the portfolio companies from a tax perspective? So if I can get that data as part of developing the systems and get that data back to the mothership so that we can then say, you know, from a benchmarking perspective, this portfolio company has a very high effective tax rate. And do I, as the tax department, want to spend some more time maybe helping those teams add value? You know, like if you think about selling the company, of course, you know, the tax rate is important. And I would guess in your industry, time the timing for some of these decisions and key investments decisions has to be even more compressed than what I'd see in the typical U.S. or foreign deals, right? Because some of these investment decisions need to be made very quickly and then understanding the after-tax consequences, including withholding tax and BEPS. I mean, it's, timing's got to be a real issue as far as being able to understand how does tax impact that after-tax return. Right. Timing, I think judgment, of course, is very important. And as I mentioned, you know, like, making sure you know that you have the right risk sort of approach to that uh, because ultimately the returns are a little lower and so therefore it's important uh, and then you know to be in the middle of the pack to be honest as it relates to you know where you want to be uh, from a risk perspective but but I think that is that's when the deal happens but then you know like you're going to own the asset for 10 years so during the life cycle of the investment uh, 
you know, you have to start tracking some of these things that I just mentioned because, you know, like, as you know, the tax law changes are not every four years. They're every year. They're every six months sometimes. And so, you know, tracking Brexit, you know, like it could have a major impact on our portfolio. Trade wars. If I invest in automotive companies, right. I, need to, I need to understand what that means. So we, of course, are trying to be very proactive and, and share some of that perspective uh, because they're investing in a lot of the multinational corporations as well. So Absolutely, that's, uh, and I see that from the investor side, right, coming into to a lot of the companies that I yeah. serve. Well, Oscar, this has been eye-opening, a fascinating discussion, a little glimpse into you know, the pension fund, sovereign wealth fund, really, really interesting issues to, to think about. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thanks again to our international tax partner and financial services partner, Oscar Tunison. I'm Doug McConey. PwC's international tax services leader in the U.S. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast.